0: Hi there, I'm Matt I'm James Kennedy.
1: And I'm Jonathan Oxier. And
0: this is the Secrets of Story podcast. (music) Welcome, everybody. We are recording episodes more often now. And as you may have heard, we have a returning special guest. He was our first special guest. He was our second special guest. And then we've had other special guests in the meantime. I know that made you jealous, Jonathan. But we've decided that we are going to forswear all of those other special guests. They meant nothing to us, and we are returning to you.
1: Thank you, as it, as you should. It's very fun to be back. I'm excited to be hanging out on the podcast in this fun new format. Do you like the new music? I do like the new music. It's so good that I forget the ads. But I'm also, <laughs> I, it, I will suffer through advertisements if it means these podcasts come more than twice a year.
0: Jonathan, welcome back. What
1: are you working on? <laughs> I've got a brand new series for younger readers coming out this October. It's called The Fabled Stables. Uh, It's called The Fabled Stables. It's about uh, a little boy named Augie who runs stables filled with all sorts of -of one-of-a-kind creatures. Uh, The first book comes out in October, and the rest are coming out after that. They're perfect for readers anywhere between, like, four years old and eight years old. 100 pages, full-color illustrations on every page. They are the perfect read-aloud, hopefully. Check it out. So, Jonathan, what are we here to talk about tonight? So I emailed you guys a while ago because there's a topic that I... Really wanted to have you both discuss. You suggested maybe we all discuss it. It's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, and I think it's something people are not talking about a lot. I may have even mentioned this in our previous podcast, but it's basically the question of how to end trilogies or how to end kind of epic Uh, multi-part stories. I'm starting to get the sense that the standard rules of ending stories doesn't apply. As someone who is buckling up to write the third book in a trilogy in the next year, I'd really like to sort this out a little bit before I (laughs) (laughs) go into things.
0: Peter Nibble, you're going to write the third and final Peter Nibble? Uh, I
1: I believe my publisher is uncomfortable with the word final, but I certainly am going to approach (laughs) it with uh with the expectation that it's a final installment and just assume that if uh future books uh come to me then i will find a way to tell those stories the thing i'm i'm spending a lot of time thinking about and i think culturally we're in a moment where we really are i mean we think about just how vitriolic and angry um the response to the end of game of thrones was and before that lost yes and the latest installment of star wars i mean it it's you feel the disappointment on a bone deep level. I I have to say, I I, want to be kind of above that and be like, you know what? Making stuff is hard. You know, they four fifths of this thing was really outstanding. I mean, Game of Thrones, like, you know, they made whatever, 80 hours of some of the greatest dramatic television I've ever seen filmed. And so to have the whole thing just, turn to ashes like that literally, so literally and, and figuratively
0: ultimately i am a defender of the game of thrones finale i feel like it ended in a proper way for that show the lost finale i hate with a white hot passion i get so angry every time i think of the Lost finale i do not get angry when i think of the game of thrones finale i feel like that ending was the ending the show deserved which is to say that the show was not as good as everybody thought it was and that the show was always hard-baked designed to disappoint that that was the whole brand of the show this is the show that disappoints this is the show where, oh, we've got you to believe in Ned Stark. Yay, we're all rooting for Ned Stark. Nope, we're going to chop his head off. Okay, now we've all got you rooting for Rob Stark. Oh, yay, we're rooting for Rob Stark. No, we're going to chop his head off, and we're going to rip his wife's baby out of her belly before we chop her head off. And then, oh, okay, now we've got you doing this. And the whole idea of that show was, the whole idea of those novels was, we are going to disappoint. And then... <laughs> George R. R. Martin decided, okay, what's the best way I can disappoint my fans? And he decided, I'm just going to stop publishing the books entirely, which was a brilliant fuck you. I mean, that is the greatest fuck you you could ever have. But it was merely a culmination of the fuck yous that had already appeared in print in those books. And then HBO decided, well, we can't do that. We have to finish the series. So we have to actually come up with a fuck you that appears on screen in order to add to, in order to properly finish this series. And I think they did it.
1: Yeah. I think it's it's a shared grieving and anger. And again, I think we saw it most recently in the last Star Wars movie. Like everyone, even when the movie is just, it's not horrific. It's not you know, this isn't, this isn't, you know, learning Captain America actually has been working for Hydra all these years. It's not a betrayal on that level, but we register it. No. We register the disappointment as a betrayal, right? We are like, we are, we are down the aisle uh with the person that we are about to marry approaching the altar. And then the person we're about to marry makes one offhand comment that makes you re, <laughs> re-investigate every moment you've shared with that person prior <laughs> and realize that, what you thought they were saying and what they actually
2: were saying were completely different, and you've got to get out. Uh, and there's like, oh a... my god, that's a great premise for a movie. <laughs> it's like, a, it's a walk down the aisle, every step is like a flashback because of like what she said at the beginning before they were walking down the aisle, and then every step is a flashback, and then they get to like the priest or whatever. That's like the end of the second act, and then he makes a decision one way or the other, and the third act is. Mayhem breaks loose. Oh, this is
0: exactly why they don't let you talk to her before the wedding. James,
1: I, the, <laughs> I, what I love is it's like you took Proust and turned it into something I would actually enjoy. I think <laughs> I think that's a terrific premise. Yeah, watch out. This
0: is James who actually, James is on record as actually enjoying actual Proust. That's I know. So that's the reference. <laughs> watch I'm, what you say. I'm,
1: again, I'm a, I'm a fan of the <laughs> podcast, so I, I know you guys pretty well. So, so, okay, just to kind of wrap up this idea. We get really angry when these big stories end, and there's a long list of the ones that do. And one of the things that I I think that has happened in our minds is there are a couple really successful endings of trilogies. Two that really leap to mind are both Lord of the Rings and Return of the Jedi. And I think we kind of got, those are two of the biggest stories. I mean, in top five of like most significant, I think, uh, cultural stories of all time of the 20th century. You wouldn't include Harry Potter there. Well, no, so Harry Potter we can get to in a second. Okay. But with those two, everyone can think of those two endings and they work nicely. No one r- often like I agree. Remember we don't remember the minutiae of like this happened, this happened, this happened, right? We don't get that Michael Arndt thing you guys were examining a, you know a, I guess a month or two ago, uh with like we don't we don't hold all of those moments, but ultimately we get the really satisfying taste. We remember a couple key plot points and we're like It's not so hard, people. Just end the trilogy. Just land the plane. But I think what we're seeing with this failure after failure after failure, again, Benioff and Weiss, there's no way they, I mean, these were incredibly skilled uh, storytellers who did something just almost unparalleled in the history of television. And to see them scuttle it It's not because they didn't care enough. Same with Lost. It's not like they weren't trying to make an absolutely killer ending. No one was wasting anyone's time there, right? They weren't limping past the finish line. They were doing everything Uh. they could. No, they were trying so desperately hard to tell a a really great ending. And I think what we're seeing is that maybe the, the Return of the Jedi and Lord of the Rings are the outliers because it's actually exceptionally rare to end these things well
2: and even maybe oh, yeah. the the second maybe the thing that makes him an outlier is because they're both the the productions of one madman you know what i mean and, and the only one madman can bring something across the finish line if it's like according to a committee it's not going to get there i've i've seen a lot of madmen really screw stuff up no but sometimes yeah, I mean, many times a madman can fuck it up but maybe it's a necessary but insufficient condition that it be a madman.
0: I mean, certainly the Wachowski sisters—they did not farm out the other two Matrix movies, and those are not well regarded. But, you know, I mean... I rewatched The Matrix
2: the other day. The Matrix isn't a good movie, guys.
0: (laughs) I I was never a big fan of it myself, and I never saw the sequels. But, I mean, you know, Lucas did bring in other directors for Star Wars 2 and 3. Those movies are more collaborative than they're given credit for. And Uh then he did not bring in other... Yeah, that's right. He brought in other writers and directors for Star Wars 2 and 3. And he did not bring in other writers and directors for the original trilogy. And that turned out much worse. So I think that... Yeah, you know, okay. the case for okay, yeah. unalloyed genius is somewhat hurt by that. I think that Lucas compromising his vision and agreeing to collaborate with others made the original Star Wars trilogy so great. Well, he was also at hurt, the height of
2: his powers.
0: It hurt the prequel, the prequel trilogy, quite a bit. To it, wasn't the Lucas, and, it wasn't what, the, the, the same Lucas, but whatever. It wasn't the same Lucas.
2: There's somebody who is when they're in their 30s and their 40s and at their height of their powers, and there's what somebody's like in their 60s and 70s when they're kind of on their way out, and those are two different people.
0: Yeah. I mean, once you start shaving your beard in a way to make it appear you have a chin when you really don't, I think that (laughs) that is a bit of a problem. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, James, you mentioned Harry Potter, and I actually think that's a really great example because I feel like uh, I think of Harry Potter, actually Mad Men, which I know Matt, you are conversant in and and James is not. And then also the, the last installment of the Avengers franchise in its current iteration. And those would be examples of like second tier endings. But again, this is a case where I have to take a breath and go, you know, cause I remember like when I finished the last Harry Potter book, I was, I was like, I breathed the sigh of relief. Cause I'm like, she landed the plane. I don't remember. I'm not going to remember a lot of what happened a year from now, but she didn't wreck it. And, and again, I actually yeah. think that's a moonshot. That I think that's an exceptionally even even a successful but unremarkable ending to one of these things is is a one in a thousand. So I've been spending the last couple months just spending a little time thinking about like well, what are some endings to long form stories that really did work for me, and are there some uh-huh. commonalities? Because if there are just some like chances are there's at least some some tricks or or, or a general way a general approach to ending things you know in, in the good endings that i think could be valuable tools for anyone dealing with this and i think this is a conversation that I seems like no one is having and and i cannot think of a more important conversation to have right now given our current cultural appetites well yeah. so let me go down just in in, in case because i i would like to hear your thoughts so i have a couple like loose ideas that I would love to present to you guys. I'm not totally sold on these, but I'm, I'm again, sniffing around a couple of these good endings and I'm just trying to create a little bit of a list of things that work. Is it okay if I start to bring some of these out and-, and... Oh yeah,
2: whenever we can have like something that's beyond like, I like this, I didn't like yeah. that. If you can give us something that is like, here is some intellectual heft, here are some structures, here are some insights, That's what that's what this is about. All right, so- Sniff away. Okay.
1: Um, I've, I've got a couple, I'm going to start with television. I don't want to spend super long time on this because I think you guys have talked about this a lot, but also James, I know these aren't, this isn't your bailiwick Two really, really, I think great television endings. Well, two significant television endings being Sopranos and Breaking Bad are, I think, illustrative of some of the issues we're dealing with. And here's what I see. Yes. I see an unwinnable thing that's happening in a lot of this long form television this exceptional long form television where there's two things that the audience is experiencing and basically it's 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 almost a you know an an ego versus super or it's an id versus super ego kind of issue <laughs> Um, one yeah. is you've got the, the sort of the base reptile brain, like where you want to see Tony Soprano whacking a bunch of people. You want to see him profiting from his vice. You want to see him coming out on top. He's this, you know, lo- lovable thug that y- you're invested in. And therefore you just want to see him th- thrive in all of the vice and through it. And that's sort of, we can almost call that like the fan service component. And there's no question yeah. that this series Soprano, like it really, it, you get to enjoy that a a little bit um, as the series is happening, because that's one of the, the the kind of the entertainment components of it. The other side of it is it's a very serious, heavy show. Uh, it's about his family trauma. It's about his psychological struggles and his you know and and the therapy is often the sort of the centerpiece of that, as you see that in all the seasons. And it's also fundamentally about you know there's this the clear dead end of his career and life and the hit the choices he's made and his failures uh, to be a, a man of integrity at so many turns it the it's going to get him and this basically this life does not end well for anyone uh especially someone who's who's done what he's done and risen to the heights he's at and so leading up to the last I, my recollection is last two seasons or so it's always was tony gonna get whacked is tony gonna get whacked and the reason that's the question everyone is asking is not By my recollection, because in every episode, someone's saying, are you going to get whacked? It's because we all knew that that was the question at hand. The question was, is this show going to let him get away with it and feed the id? Or is it going to confront all of us in, uh, and all of our ids with the reality of what this guy's actually doing and what he actually deserves? And David Chase's answer to that is famously to cut away seconds before we get an answer. And and you can really read either ending. He either is about to get whacked or actually he kind of righted the ship and things are gonna be okay.
0: And it was brilliant. I think it was brilliant. And I think that it was the only way the show could have ended. Because I think, ironically, they were in a place where to confirm it one way or another that he lives or he dies would be hypocritical either way i think that if they were to kill him off then it would have been an issue of oh you get to enjoy him committing all these sins and him being this horrible guy and then you get to go like oh but he's different than me he got killed off i didn't i got to enjoy living through his horrible deeds and then i got to enjoy watching him be killed and once again separate him from me
1: 100 percent
0: and he knew he knew that that was a very hypocritical thing to let his audience do. He didn't want to let his audience get away with that. And yet he knew that if he let him live in a way where everybody watching the show was sure he had lived, that then it would be even worse, that then it would be a question of, we got to enjoy this guy living out his it and living out this horrible life this whole time. And then he just keeps living and he's keep fine. And everybody who saw Tony's Soprano as their idol gets to continue thinking of him as their idol and gets to gloat about his success, just like Trump winning in 2016, and they get to have all of their prejudices confirmed. And the only way to end that show is a way where nobody is sure whether he lived or died. Where if you go into that ending thinking like he's got to live to confirm my prejudice, then you come out of that and going like oh, wait, I'm not sure he lived. And if you go in thinking he's got to die to confirm my prejudice, then you come out of that and going like, I'm not sure he died. And so no one is confirmed in their prejudice and the show has a perfect ending.
1: Okay, so I agree with that, except for one thing. I think you're making it a little complicated and you're also engaging in some mind reading that I don't think is... Uh, fully fits. I would make it a tiny bit simpler than this idea that killing Tony somehow lets us like enjoy the bad stuff and get it and get off the hook. I think it's as simple as there's the gap between what we want and what we need. We want Tony to thrive and have fun, right? Reptile brain, th- the id, and what we need is the moral gravity of this thing to be real full stop and so it's it is a you can't serve two masters thing because you either those things are mutually exclusive you can do one or the other and no matter which one you pick you're failing right you can go all to the head and you're going to miss that gut right you're going to miss the fun and the pleasure up until that point i would say that that is the only way to end that series But then Breaking Bad changed my mind. Basically, Breaking Bad is the opposite. So if Sopranos denies us either ending, which again was a masterful move, and I think it was infuriating to a lot of people, but it has really withstood the test of time and i and i really
0: yeah that was interesting cuz people were very down on that ending when it first aired and within i'd say about a year people thought it was awesome people were like oh you know i think every time anybody hears the song Don't Stop Believin' come on the radio which comes on the radio a lot that, because of <laughs> that show were like oh great yeah, well, I think that I think that that sh- the song made the show made that song, and that song also made the show to a real extent. And I think that people have really, I think, like saying elsewhere, people have really come around on that ending, and they they fucking love it. Now. Have
2: people um have have were people really against it at the beginning? Oh yeah,
0: oh yeah, that Sopranos ending, people were furious.
2: So here's another example. This okay. is going way
1: back. Counter counterexample of this, I actually think, is um, the Seinfeld ending. which
0: Everybody hated. Everybody
1: hated it. Here's what the Seinfeld ending did. The Seinfeld ending actually, I think, gave us what we deserved, which is like, yes. it, it was what we needed, but it wasn't fun. It, and again, this is why I say it's not just about con- making a story do the, the hefty, lofty, intellectually or morally correct thing to its universe. If you fail to capture the the thing that that made us fall in love in the beginning, you've
0: also failed. Breaking Bad. uh, That's true. Like, Seinfeld, they were literally like, you were all bad for liking these characters. These were bad characters. You should not have liked them. They belong to be in jail. We are going to recapitulate all of their sins and then put them in jail for it. And we are also, therefore, putting you in jail for having enjoyed watching this show. No, no,
2: no, no, Matt. That's not why people disliked it. The reason people disliked it is because that song, that show is about the minutiae of urban life, the kind of the the, the weird, like unspoken etiquettes that, you, you know, the, the kind of like...
0: And they made it oh, Hold on, no, l- l- listen to me. They spoke the etiquette.
2: No, but the, 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 the lines that you can't cross, the lines that you have to cross, even though you shouldn't, things like that. But once you actually bring it into a courtroom and make it explicit and put them literally in jail, it's no longer part of like... I mean, obviously Seinfeld was not the real world, but when you have something that's like, oh, they spent a whole episode and they're just waiting for a table at a Chinese restaurant, that's the fundamental yes. DNA of Seinfeld. And but when you you make this kind of like ridiculous court case in, in which like the OJ lawyer is kind of accusing them of things, it breaks your reality. Every time that George Costanza was doing some kind some kind of thing with the Yankees, it was always breaking reality a bit in a way that I didn't like but it broke reality completely when they're in this big trial and they literally went to jail. It did not feel like everyday life. And Seinfeld was all about heightened everyday life. It was all about the nightmare of like, I live in an anonymous city of millions of people. And so I stiff people or I'm, un, I'm mean to people all the time. And Seinfeld's about the nightmare of what if this large city is a small town and the person that you stiff or you're mean to in the first act comes back to you in the third act and messes you up, which is something that never happens in real life. But you're always afraid it's going to happen to you. Um, but it never happens to you in the city because there's millions of people. But then, it, then it, in it, the finale, they,
0: they actually had them fly to a small town where they actually suffer the consequences for their actions. And, and and that, but that's why it
2: doesn't work because that's not the promise of the premise anymore. They made it into a different show, uh, yeah. and and not, and frankly, not as interesting. The the thing the. If you dig down to the minutia of the real, you'll always find something universal and and enjoyable. Once you ascend, quote-unquote ascend, to the level of allegory or, or morality play, you will fail.
0: Yes. So what you were you saying,
2: Jonathan?
1: Well, I, I want to respond to all of that stuff. I, I think, again, I, I'm a little more with James on this one, but I think fundamentally, at least for me, it's much simpler. It's, it's, it's about the pleasure of it and the meaning of it. And, and one tip too far, it was too much about its idea at the end and there was none of the pleasure. Um, And I think James is pretty close to what some of the actual pleasure was. The only thing I would say that I thought was really remarkable about Breaking Bad. And I, we may have even discussed this on a previous podcast, but basically uh, th- there's a similar tension in Breaking Bad as there is to sopranos where is Walt going to get what 's coming to him right he He starts the series with terminal cancer, Death is on the menu for him, and then he rises to all these heights he 's consistently clever he's outthinking people Matt in your blog you've talked really wonderfully about how the pleasure of that show is every episode we get to see
0: Walter White outsmart someone and And you' yes, pointed the, out that he, the pleasure and the pain of that show, like no, it can it could also be frustrating watching that show and having him always get the better of it,
1: but no, but you're that's the perfect, but I think you're right to identify that as the pleasure that's what made the food taste good. It isn't what made the food nourishing, but it's what it made it taste good. What made it true. nourishing was the heavy moral weight of what's going on and and how real the consequences become at the end of the series. basically, what happens is I think it's the Third to last episode is Ozymandias. And that's that's the moral ending to the show. That is the ethically, narratively, philosophically responsible ending where everything that needed to happen, happened. But then you get a two-episode, like a (laughs) two-parter episode at the end that's basically one more romp, and it's all candy. But because it's after (laughs) the final ending, there's a complete understanding that he's not getting off the hook but we're going to root yes. for him one more time as he tries to contain some of the damage of the wreckage he's left behind for the people he still loves, even if he is forever separated from them and at Death's Door. And that was, I'd never seen kind of a have your cake and eat it too situation. And the reason I think that show has, you know, and, and it's been a, a, like a decade now, right? It's truly enshrined as one of the great shows is because it was so satisfying at the end, right? It's, it's, it's the thing that David Chase thought would be impossible to do which is please everyone and somehow breaking bad goes no we can just give everyone everything they need and it's it's philosophically responsible and it's crazy entertaining and the aftertaste those last episodes feel so good you give yourself permission to root for him one
0: more time because you know he's not going to get off the hook you know there's well yeah, well, but it was interesting because people turned that episode into another Sopranos finale because there was the fan theory that he actually froze to death in the car. Sure, maybe. Great. Good. Good for the Internet. Whatever. <laughs> if we're critiquing Twitter,
1: the 15 people that created that fan theory uh, aren't are not are the collective unconscious or the kind of the way we've absorbed the story. Real sickos. <laughs> uh, so so that's, so that's one piece of this. What I'm talking about, you want the list, James. One list is there's two things we need to gratify. And it's basically, to use the food metaphor is probably the best one, actually. There's the flavor and there's the, and there's the nutritional content. And those things are often and direct odds. And ultimately, we really want them both. And if you can't give us, uh, if they are, if, they're usually, again, sort of mutually exclusive. Giving us, if you can't give us both, give us neither. Um, a lot of the endings you talk about being satisfying, um, and I think of satisfying, have that ambiguity at the end of them. Certainly, you know, you talk about Back to the Future or maybe even The Matrix. Um, so that's one piece of it, is really identifying what was the pleasure appeal of the story. I need to make sure I'm not losing sight of that. And then also, what is the moral weight that's actually carrying this whole story and making people really invested in it? I can't betray that either. That's That's one piece of the puzzle. That I'm looking for. I don't have a clear answer on how to do it, but I at least feel like I now have a thing to look for. Another thing that I noticed, you and I emailed this about this podcast months ago, um, and I was really excited to talk about it then. And we were kicking back and forth possible trilogies that were that were good. And uh, and so I rewatched the Avengers. Um, you recommended I watched Indiana Jones and uh, and the Last Crusade, which I I thought I had never seen. It turns out I have seen it, but I think that's. Um, I think that's my movie review uh, in a nutshell is that I
0: saw it and thought I hadn't seen it. Um, you sure are wrong. That is one of the all time great trilogy endings and it is perfect. Okay. It is a, a, you know, it's, it's an odd one because the second one, I mean, I think that is essentially a duology. I cut out the second one in my mind. I'm not a big fan of the second one. So I see that as a two movie series and I think it is a perfect two movie series. Great. Um, it's, <laughs> that that was the the most dismissive great ever no i
1: see what no well here's the thing we can have opinions about this stuff all day long i'm trying to figure out what's going on with it like if we just want to go 12 rounds about what we think of the indiana jones franchise you've just stumbled upon the one human being in the world who thinks the best one of them is temple of doom uh so we could blow an hour on <laughs> wait, that wait.
0: but i don't think that's productive. You, you think that wait do you mean you are that human being you think the best one is temple of doom yeah
1: it's not going to be a productive conversation basically it's the only one i had on vhs as a child so i've seen it a thousand times and i only saw the
0: others in adulthood. That's, i bet I also, that was the only one I had on VHS as a child. And I felt so miserable that that was the only one I had on VHS as a child because I was like, this is the one that sucks. Pull up, pull up, guys, pull up.
2: We got to keep focused. Stay <laughs> on right.
0: target. Stay on
2: target. Stay on stay target. Stay on
0: target.
1: So one of the things that I think you can do, and I think uh, Last Crusade does this very well, is it's got that absolutely terrific, like 10 minute open that's like peak Spielberg, where he's this young boy scout, he comes upon the robbers, and there's so many great callbacks with the hat and the bullwhip He set up with his father. Whoa all of this stuff it's the snakes. the snakes i mean it's it's and 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 again it's smarter than i think if that movie were made today it would never be as half as clever as it is right now because in, or in the original version um it it's it doesn't just show you snakes. It doesn't just show you the whip. It always like gives you a couple steps to bring the thing into the into kind of present context. Because yeah, I, I I might make the argument it, it's fun. I thought that was the best part of that movie. And I think when that sort of those sort of fan service links are made, and they are made well, they're so exhilarating. The problem is they are often given to us in moments where there we have no emotional buy in, and the only way we're supposed to get emotional buy in is because we have previous emotional attachment to something that's not actually in the movie um but but the Uh bigger to me the bigger lesson was i think spielberg was uh doing was understanding there is an actual need here which is if a because some of this is about scope right in many ways last crusade shouldn't it has to feel bigger and more significant and weightier than the first two installments. And certainly Raider the Lost Ark has a lot of weight. It's the Ark of the Covenant. I think this sense of callbacks, it's not just about showing the bullwhip and the hat, and those are like fun little things, but the bringing it back to Nazis, bringing it back to... Uh-huh. Yes. The most significant biblical artifacts, bringing it back to questions of faith, which are central to Raiders of the Lost Ark, and also explaining to us, tipping your hat or hand or whatever, you know, revealing, revealing um, pretty explicitly, this has been with Indy since he was a boy. His most formative moment as a as a young adolescent was tied up with these very questions of this object and this belief and these pe- these personalities and now we're finally going to close that chapter which has been hanging over him his entire life and i think that to me is a really a really powerful tool to make a third installment of thing of something feel bigger than just yet another installment of something
2: yeah you know not only is he di- is he going up against nazis in this one he confronts the ultimate nazi Adolf Hitler, <laughs> yeah. you know, not only does he Adolf look Hitler's after religious spoken. artifacts, whereas the Ark of the Covenant is a kind of obscure thing, but the, the, the Holy Grail, I mean, there's whole, you know, legends about it. The Arthurian legends are all about it. You know, like all the Knights of the Round Table are always going after it. And, and so you're, you're finding like, the ultimate version of everything from the first movie.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um,
2: but I think it's really important to show that this has been with him always
1: if he was not a grail guy until the beginning of this movie, and it's just another case for him, nothing that uh-huh. happens has that same weight. It's, it's really demonstrating, like, this is in this person's DNA. Imagine if we did, and I understand it's, it, like, contractually, it's impossible to do a Batman movie without doing a flashback to when his parents died. Um, oh, my God. But imagine if there were Too many times. there were a Batman trilogy. Imagine if we didn't know who Batman was, and there were a Batman trilogy and the third Batman movie opens with that death, which we've never known about. That yeah. becomes a, and if it's done well, and if it's if it's a kind of a correct and accurate history to the weight and themes of the story and the character, that adds so much power and gravity to everything that's about to take place. Because what you're what you're demonstrating to your audience, your reader, whomever, is that this. We are about to give the answer to a question that has been fueling this person from the beginning. It's a secret thing about them you didn't even know, and now you've learned it, and we're going to and we're going to finally close it up. Again, this to me is a very really valuable tool because it's something you know, this isn't about having a plan on you know line one of the first book. This is a thing you can manufacture in the third book
2: and
0: still mm-hmm. create. Well, but I mean, it's obviously it's even better if you do. I mean, it's even better if you do say. I don't. I don't part. know. I think we no, have no, a no. As a
2: believer in improv, I think I think that you can you can you can figure it out as you go along. But uh, I think w- one of the things that you definitely need in the third, which is like something that I'm I'm afraid that Indiana Jones: and The Last Crusade does not do, but uh, say Return of the Jedi does, is that you have to have a worthy villain. Donovan in Indiana Jones: and The Last Crusade is not a worthy villain. He's just a rich guy who's after yeah. something. Whereas there's a worthy villain in Return of the Jedi, who's a heightening and an intensification, and somebody who's been hinted at, like in the first two movies, the Emperor. Same thing in Lord of the Rings. We don't, you really have any direct contact with Sauron, really, even in uh, in the end of Return of the King. We don't really have contact with him. He's just always just this presence, but he's eventually, you know, taken care of. But we have to have a worthy adversary in this final wrap-up thing uh, otherwise it's the, you have something like donovan like the placeholder villain and that's why although last crusade is great it's not ideal uh and yeah, that's why we think that. of return of the jedi as ideal i think that's an, a really astute observation and one thing is
1: i would point out going to avengers and we can talk about that in a second but i think not enough can be said about how how significant thanos was as a presence because that, historically villains have been the weakness of almost all the marvel movies with the exception of the first spider-man which is perfect but thanos was was really an exceptionally strong villain and i think that's
0: why he was able to carry the end of that installment but and then well but i think that the key is what indiana jones didn't do is i mean the most important decision that lucas and Kazden made was they were like Oh, shit, they realized halfway through making Empire Strikes Back, we're going to want to redeem Vader, and we can't redeem Vader if he's the only villain, and we'd better set up his boss. We'd better have a brief moment in the second movie, thinking ahead... If we're thinking ahead and now realizing we want to redeem him, we'd better set up that he has a boss who is a horrible guy. Wait, hold if on. They had not, if they had not set up until we arrived in the third Star Wars movies, that Vader had a boss and that there was an emperor and that this is who and he is. Emperor
1: Palpatine is, is like, referenced in we New would Hope.
0: Not... Yeah, yeah, and not only that, Vader has a boss in A New Hope. It's Tarkin. Well, right, but I'm saying showing him, showing the emperor okay. in. Empire Strikes Back is essential. It is absolutely essential. Yeah. They show the Empire they show the Emperor in in Empire Strikes Back, right. and it's one of the many, many flaws with the third Star Wars trilogy. Is that suddenly they actually kill off the big bad in the second movie in the in the third Star Wars trilogy, and then they're like, they very quickly have to have to scramble in the third one, going the Emperor's back. It's like, well, when did the Emperor come back? Oh, he came back in a trailer that we showed. Yeah, should've they should have
2: had they should have <laughs> had the 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 courage of their convictions and just make Kylo Ren the bad guy. Yeah, um, yes, they should have or Rey. I was
1: really, I was hoping yeah, Ray yeah. was going to become the villain and Kylo Ren would be a good guy. But again, we can't litigate that. I don't want to litigate failures because we'll be here all day. James, I think you, first of all, made a really good point about the significance of villains. I think one thing that I would say, and this is where Emperor Palpatine, whether or not he's referenced in New Hope, which I believe he is. And I have seen that movie over a hundred times. He is. <laughs> um, uh.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the
1: only one i like is new hope but i really like but,
0: it um the uh, okay you're wrong wait you don't like empire strikes back wait what are we even having to come why are we even dignifying you with anything no, it's fine. <laughs> like no empire i like it strikes back? i just don't love it <laughs> That's
1: okay <Sorry>. um <laughs> the <laughs> the but the thing you're pointing out is not only is it a villain who is uh, or I would think the one thing I would add to this, and this to me is, is is a significant thing for me to understand, at least. It's not just you need a cool villain or a big, powerful villain, but you need a villain who actually brings into focus what this is all about. And Donovan could have been that, and maybe was that in, in uh, Last Crusade, if I could remember the details of it, but I saw it a whole month ago, and it still hasn't stuck. <laughs> um, but... Palpatine couldn't just be a, a bigger, beefier, scarier looking Tarkin, right? He had to be an extension yeah, of yeah. what Vader was going through and what Luke was going through. And I think you, Sauron, yes. you're right, is, is a really, to me, just a, a really weak and, and not compelling villain, nor are the orcs or any of the evil creatures. But the ring, which has been there from the very beginning of the story, is clearly yeah. a terrifying and resonant antagonist. And one of the things that I think about in both Return, Return of the Jedi and Return of the King, when I think about those endings, and I, I, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on Return of the King, but I looked at the Wikipedia article and it confirmed this enough to let me espouse it as a theory to your millions of listeners. I think in both cases, it's taken the questions at the core of the story and pushed them farther than the audience thought to do. So up right up until the end of Return of the Jedi, there's a lot of battle about um, spiritual battle about what's going on inside Luke. But fundamentally we still think he's going there to have a sword fight with a bad guy and get rid of the bad guy. He's going to channel the good force, the good energy and all of the Jedi stuff. And he's going to channel that to win a sword fight. And what we end up seeing is like, no, no, no. The fight we're having right now on the, on a moral and spiritual and philosophical level, you push through that and you realize this one can't be won with a sword. It can only be won by Vader, and it can only be won through nonviolence and complete and total sacrifice of self, which is really what the Jedi want, right? And that correct. And that's resonant correct. and correct. that's oh, yeah. huge. And we remember that moment because it fits to the core core themes. When we get to Return of the King.
2: Yeah. Yeah, when Luke throws away his wet his lightsaber it's it's the best part of the entire original trilogy. It's a it's a it's a confirmation of his ultimate fa- pacifism. It's why like him throwing away his lightsaber in the last Jedi makes sense. He's not about lightsabers, and, and He's it's, it's
1: showing the actual mastery yeah. of what we've been espousing this whole time, right? And and I think of Lord of the Rings from the yeah. very beginning. It's no one is above this ring. No one can beat its temptation, and they carry it to Mordor and the, the, the mountain Doom or whatever it is, right to the edge, Mount Doom, right, right to the edge of it, and they still have the naive, hubristic thought that the reader does too, which is we get to the right trash, trash bin and we can drop this sucker in it and we're gonna be fine. But what happens when they get to the rim? Frodo is overwhelmed with the desire for the ring. He tries to, I believe, kill his best friend for it after everything they've been through. And the only thing that stops him is Gollum biting off his finger to get the ring, dancing with glee, and then falling over the edge. And that pushed the theme and the idea of the ring and the ring's power way past. Like, in my mind, I'd been like, yes, the ring is so powerful and tempting, and that's why Frodo needs to carry it up to this place and drop it off but I never actually truly believed yes. this idea. They kept saying the ring was sort of impossible to resist, but I, I I actually had like a caveat where I'm like, well, except for my hero. And so the theme comes so <laughs> deep in that moment. Right. And, and so when I think of both of those endings, I think what happens that's really memorable is the theme we've been sitting with and thought we had fully kind of understood and plumbed the depths of, suddenly something... New- it punches through to another dimension or it goes in it inceptions deeper to another level i just literally tonight with my kids re toy story 3 which is another exceptional ending to a trilogy yes so the first two toy story movies it's about uh, a toy getting left behind by a human kind of getting abandoned and thrown to the wayside and it's about the insecurity of that toy and then the reason the last 10 minutes of Toy Story 3 has every adult sobbing is because it's taken this theme and totally reversed the roles and it's about a parent letting go of a child and suddenly the toy who's basically been the child who's disposable yeah. or the you know the, the object that's disposable by the all-powerful child who loves them. The child in, in the first two movies basically Andy is the parent to Woody as the child and then we get this flip where Woody realizes that he's the one who has to let Andy go. And it's happening, Andy's doing the same thing, and there's a lot of, you know, again, there's a lot of uh, emotional complexity there because uh, every child, or every parent was once a child, and, you know, and 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 these things switch back and forth. But it punched through to the deeper theme, which was letting someone go. And, and I think it's so affecting yeah. because of that. And I think if you get that part right, the villain doesn't matter. I sat down to Toy Story 3, not remembering who the villain was. And as I was watching it this time, I'm like, yeah, it's standard, very good, very funny, quality Pixar caper. But one of the things that they did do with that villain was make him a perfect mirror of Woody. When they give his backstory, he was the favorite toy of someone. And so we get this perfect mirror of what the hero will become if he or she does not overcome this last moral challenge. Exactly as we see in Star Wars. One of the things that I also think is significant is in all of these stories or in many of these great endings, and this is probably the last thing I I got a real clear sense of, there is often sort of a, a walk down memory lane. And it's actually when you start looking for it, it's crazy explicit. The latest Avengers... There's a time travel mechanic and all of these members of the Avengers split off and go to different areas to find the stupid gemstones that I don't care about. But in the locations (laughs) where they go, they revisit scenes from the previous movies that we watched and enjoyed and now are, Running around doing their hijinks in the background as we see, you know, Mark Ruffalo, who looks six years younger, chatting with someone from a scene from the past <laughs> movie. And now the older, wiser Mark Ruffalo is behind him. And the nostalgia of walking through that past, I think, is absolutely huge. And it's, it's, it, the, uh, you know, one of the things I think about with the Harry Potter ending, I was really struck when I read The Cursed Child about how much more I enjoyed that. Uh, and it, how much more that felt like an ending. What?
0: Than, I well, haven't read
2: it, so I don't know.
0: I gave up on The Cursed Child. I read the first 30 pages and I said, this is fan fiction and it sucks and I'm not reading anymore. Really, you find Cursed Child more powerful do, than Harry Potter it book it seven? I because it actually had a
1: sense of closing a loop in a way that I really, really needed that we get a little bit of in the seventh book. But I remember what goes down in Godric's Hollow better in Cursed Child than I do in The Last Harry Potter. But I even even with The Last Harry Potter, wow. I really love that fact. Isn't it when he goes he goes to like the white space, don't they basically teleport him back to platform nine and three quarters in the seventh Harry Potter book? That's a perfect example yes. of this. You take us back to these spaces that we have all of these emotional yep. attachments from that connect to the beginnings of these stories. One way to do it is sort of the Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade where you just shoehorn in the intro, but I think the even better way is to actually walk us back through this. And there's something so pleasurable and emotionally meaningful about, because right we're mourning these characters. We're trying to put them away and we're trying to find a way to say goodbye to them in a way that feels right. And I think this is just another, it's a trick. It's a tool. I don't know what you would call it, but I think going back, basically, I think the walk by through down memory lane, revisiting locations and moments from the The story that made us fall in love with the franchise, I think that's a good thing to do when you're trying to tell the end of a story is give us that moment in the beginning to inhabit those spaces. And they're not, it's not just callbacks and gags. It's actually, I think something kind of cathartic is happening with the
0: audience. Well, and I think that Endgame, Game is a really brilliant movie and that Endgame, what they did with that is they're like, we're going to give, on the one hand, a tremendously fan servicey ending where we're going to revisit each of the previous 21 movies we're going to have this all tie into a big knot tie into a big loop and we're going to give you oh here's all your favorite moments here they are we're hitting them all again oh and then... I, I got
2: so tired I mean I haven't seen Endgame I, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you but as soon as you said we went and revisited all 21 movies <laughs> I felt my soul start to leave my body okay go on
0: so I feel like they turned it into, on the one hand, it's the ultimate fan service, but they had this brilliant idea over there. Like let's have this five-year jump, which I feel like is on the one hand, a huge problem for end game. It's my biggest problem with end game is the five-year jump. But I just recently watched the movie and then I watched the commentary and Marcus McFeely were talking about how the whole purpose of the five-year jump is to have them revisit these moments as different people. And so Thor is now the Big Lebowski. Thor is now this fat loser, <laughs> and the Hulk is now integrated and brilliant and smart, and they are these different people. And of course, these changes had happened more organically in the Captain America and Iron Man franchises, and they had genuinely become different people over the course of those very well written trilogies. Which Thor had not had as good of a trilogy, and Hulk hadn't had a trilogy. Wait, long. wait, 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 but, wait, so wait, wait, wait wait, like, wait, 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 wait. Let's go ahead. Are and you saying Ragnarok is not in the like absolute? Top shelf. I'm um, Ragnarok. It's great, but they the Thor trilogy did arc. not have as much okay integrity as a trilogy as the Iron that. Man and Continue. Captain America trilogies had. Thor Ragnarok was sort of a abrupt right turn for the franchise. But I feel like plot wise, the five year break, and certainly in terms of honoring the fans and honoring what was what the series need to be going forward, I feel like the five year jump was probably a mistake. But I feel like emotionally, it was great. They knew they had a great emotional way to set up these ways to revisit all these previous movies. I mean, it's interesting compared to Lost because Lost was another very fan. They thought they had written the ultimate fan service finale. And really, the whole reason the Lost finale existed is like, well, what do our fans want? Our fans want to see everybody kiss again who has ever kissed in the history of the show. So let's find a way to have them jumping around timelines, just just like in Endgame, in Lost, in the finale, let's have them jumping around timelines so that every couple that's ever been together has been thrown back together briefly and has another chance to kiss, and then they all end up going to Unitarian heaven, the end. And people fucking hated it. Everybody who hated the Sopranos finale, who later came around on it, everybody who hated the Game of Thrones finale, none of their hatred... Was anywhere near my hatred of the Lost finale, which still is. I was so seething with hatred as I watched the Lost finale that I had to find an outlet for my hatred and my anger. And I was like, I have to do something. I have to do something right now about how. Jonathan, angry you ever, I am ever heard about that first wife? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I have to do something right now. And so I said, the only thing I can do right now to hurt these people as much as they've hurt me is I'm going to go on Amazon and I'm going to remove. Lost seasons four, five, and six from my Amazon wish list. <laughs> oh, man, I did so it, and I felt I so much better. I felt so much better. I, I, so sorry. So much better. I,
2: I really, I really derailed the 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 uh, momentum of your <laughs> joke that you were building up to. That I, I, I'm I'm am honestly sorry.
1: <laughs> That's why I yeah, can not want to, to cut that one. I love you guys so much. Um, one of the I'm I'm just an idea. Uh, a uh, just another example coming to mind i'm going to rewind a little bit to that what we were talking about with taking the core theme and and honestly like i'm presenting that to you as a thought i have but actually matt it's it's largely connected to one of your early blog rules basically about how twists can't betray the the kind of fundamental premise and i think you talk about battlestar galactica and that was one of a kind of an early insight that made me realize just how wonderful your mind is on these subjects And so I think about that a lot about like really sinking in deep, like what's this thing actually about and not losing sight of that. And, but this idea of kind of pushing it through to another level in a way that's sort of shocking. Again, that's, that's Luke dropping the lightsaber and suddenly Vader being the one um, or it's, you know, realizing what it means to mess with the one ring. Um, I'm actually not the biggest uh, Buffy, the vampire slayer fan. Um, I basically spent seven seasons, like, it, like being like, I, th- I think it's going to get good soon. <laughs> um,
2: but that's also to say, <laughs> yeah, Jonathan, I'm, w- I'm with you. I, 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 I remember it was very popular. I never watched it, but I remember a lot of people were saying, James, you got to watch it. It's so great. I mean, James, even in, in graduate school, there are like classes about it, which means it must be great. I'm like, that means it's the kind of thing that graduate <laughs> students like. That doesn't mean it's good. And I think it, it, it was at that at that point when it reached that point at which people were teaching college courses about it. I I, <laughs> well, resolved I don't think never not you... to
0: watch it. Buffy is Buffy is great. I absolutely love the first six okay. seasons well, of Buffy. Well, this is where I we like differ. The,
1: the one place I hold, I don't think the show ever gets good, but I think every like episode is basically like one percent better than the previous episode. <laughs> But I actually loved the finale and I'm going to spoil it for you, James, but there's a pivotal idea. Like she's basically Buffy's been the chosen one this whole time. And she is the one chosen. She's going to kick vampire Uh butt and you know, all of this stuff. And we, we have these connections to this character and all of her relationships. And at the very end, they fundamentally question a core premise that we haven't really examined too closely. We just took it for granted when she basically says, why is there just one and you know there's some there's some unwinnable vampire war coming i can't remember exactly but the this core premise that she's the chosen one she basically is like maybe it just landed on me and i bet there's a ton of the ones out there who just need to be like found and trained and taught and uh mobilized and that to me was a really really gratifying ending you know it's a silly show and it was a silly move but it actually it was satisfying because it it caught me in my own assumptions, right? I'd been going along with the story so, so long, you know, the matrix could have done that. The matrix could have pulled the curtain back and we realized there's another layer behind, you know, of reality behind this or something like that. Instead they had these long discourses that I didn't, Uh, understand at the moment
0: well i mean was there ever a better candidate for that than the matrix where so many people who liked it as we have now seen with all the red pill bullshit we've had to put up with all these years so many people who liked it liked it for the wrong reasons And what better way for these two transgender women, they were not transgender women at the time, really had a great opportunity to take the piss out of the people who liked that first movie for the wrong reasons, (laughs) and to really upset their expectations, and they did not do that. I
1: think if you're going to take the piss out of someone who doesn't like that movie, you probably have to deal with casual violence. Uh, which they had no interest in in combating. Um,
0: but By the time they made those sequels, the first movie had helped inspire the Columbine shooting. And you would think, if for nothing else, that they would be like, wow, let's, uh, yeah, let's take no, a step they, back and see what we've drawn. Um, but...
2: Have we fully explored the ones that we have mentioned so far, Lord of the Rings and Return of the Jedi? I think, so we, what we've, we've come upon is like, it has to, what I've kind of decided is that Both of those, they have to touch something beyond the story. That's my take on it. It can't be just about the the in-universe mechanics. It has to touch something outside of it, right? Like like Return of the Jedi. Like he renounces Star Wars. You know, like this whole thing is about wars and the stars, and he kind of like he he renounces it. Right? He says, "I'm not going to fight." The whole premise of this of these movies. I'm not going to do it. And, and Lord of the Rings, you know, the, it's, it's about, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit about the ring going into Mount Doom, but really, really is about it's about magic is leaving Middle-earth, right? Because there's a whole part, I mean, if we're looking, thinking about the books, after they throw the ring in it, they go back to the Shire, there's a scouring of the Shire, everything like that. Uh, Frodo goes off to the Grey Havens. But it's really about magic is leaving the world and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, um, yeah. and, and that gives like the great epic feeling to it, which we kind of hint at a little bit. When we see Frodo go off to the great havens of the elves, we feel it. Um, but the, In the movies. The, yeah, in the movies. And, and so there's, I think a fine, like we get into something because we are caught up in like the id of it, right? Like we'd like, oh my God, these are great fights. You know, we see like two spaceships fighting at the beginning of the Star Wars. We're like, oh my God, I love this. And so we're 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 hooked by the id, and then we're led through some kind of process to some kind of thing that's higher than that. That is outside. I mean, if it's to be a successful series, that's outside. It, it affirms the value of something. Outside of this series of movies something that has that kind of meaning that, yeah. that kind of balance. Do you see what I mean? I think you're touching
1: on and maybe there's a really mean. succinct way We can say this and you're talking about something a little bit bigger about sort of penetrating the the psyche of the audience but within there is a small craft thing that I think I can isolate mm-hmm. maybe all of these need loss and we need to see a real loss And the audience needs to feel that loss because I think about, so Lord of the Rings, it's very like the end of this age. We had this huge sweeping, like capital E epic adventure, but there are never going to be adventures like this again. And we are putting those toys away. And even Return of the Jedi, which I was was racking my brain. I'm like, well, what happens there? They just dance with Ewoks. It's really cheesy. It works, but like, that's not that. But then I remember Luke redeems his father and then has to burn him at the pyre. It's enormous loss. He got right. the thing yeah. that was the moonshot, right? Yeah. He, he redeemed Vader. He restored balance to the universe. He got his father back and now it's gone. And I think actually, maybe maybe the way to say it is the thing that you're talking about, James, the tool or mechanism by which you can create that is by a tangible, irrevocable loss. So here's an idea that I'm thinking of now, going back to Harry Potter. Many, many years ago, after the Harry Potter fina- last book happened, and this is why I'm not the biggest fan of book seven, honestly.
0: It was, I... <laughs> All right, which one of us is drunk enough to that have, was have many bottles piled up?
2: <laughs> Me. Me. I can yeah. see the little
0: radio waves
1: happening on your two feeds. <laughs> um, <laughs> the client is very discreet on the page. Um, so, so let's take this idea and go back to Harry Potter. And part of the reason I'm not a huge fan of the last book is weirdly because of one of these sort of Reddit type threads where someone did like, I don't know, you know, these things circulate where it's like a bunch of text and images and text and images. It's like almost a mini photo essay. And basically it was someone's here's how I wished Harry Potter would end. And I'm going to try to run down as quickly as, as I can. The basic idea was, You know, this is the person speculating as they're following the series before the ending happens.
2: There's a prophecy. Wait, hold on. Before you begin, begin, can I just say where I think it's going to go? Harry must give up magic. Close, but so much better. (laughs) The
1: the prophecy is (laughs) um, one will live and one will die. Harry ends up killing... Oh, no, maybe, basically, I think Harry in his fight loses to Voldemort, as happens in the book. This poor person who had this theory gets all the way to, like, the, you know, 90% of the way through book seven, and everything is ticking off their theory. They go to King's Crossing. They're in the white vastness. They're talking to Ghost Dumbledore, if I recall. Um, But this is what they had hoped had happened, is that the prophecy was made more articulate. No, 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 Harry, you misunderstood. Only one of them, one of you two, you or Voldemort gets to live and only one of you or or Voldemort gets to die, which means if you kill Voldemort, you will become immortal and you will be forever separated from your two dead parents who all you want, every motivation, every yearning of your heart is to be with them and you will forever be the boy who lived. And so the series would end with this happy ending, ah. but this deep ironic twist. In always, always, always surviving and living is good, is unambiguously good. And then, uh, to me, See? if the books had had that ending, they would be my it would be my favorite
2: ending of all time. Uh, I, the thing is, like that's kind of, it's merely notional. The idea of like being with your parents after you die because no. you can't really imagine that and nobody really thinks they're going to be with anybody after they die you're just going to be dead however the thing that 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 harry that really made him at home was the fact that he got part of this community of magic and so if he gets initiated into it at the beginning and then when he destroys the last horcrux in his head that takes out his magic and he has to he no longer has magic at the end of Book 7.
0: He has to leave that world. All oh, great. Both more great. heartbreaking. Well, I, I prefer Jonathan's I prefer Jonathan sending to James. I think James would it would have led to a massive revolt. But okay, here is how it actually should have ended. I think that they they set up that they set up this great thing, which is that the prophecy could have either been about Neville or Harry. Oh, this and is like
2: some that, deep state shit right now. That
0: is the perfect setup for the seventh book, and then they just dropped that. And the way I would have it end is that they found that Voldemort had broken his soul into several pieces. And the last piece of Voldemort's soul was the good part of Voldemort. And every part of him had spread off. And so after they destroy all the Horcruxes, they're left with this pitiful Voldemort who is the last remaining good part of Voldemort who's like, oh my God, what have I done? I've done all these horrible things. What is going on? And then everybody's like, well, it's still Voldemort. He's going to turn evil again. We have to kill him. And Harry's like, no, we shouldn't do it. Like Luke, he throws away the lightsaber and says we shouldn't kill him. And then Neville kills him. And then Neville is like, he tortured, he just killed your parents. He tortured my parents. I'm going to kill him. He kills him. And then everybody says, oh my God, all this time we thought Harry was the chosen one. We thought, well, sure, the the prophecy could have applied to Neville, but surely it applies to Harry. Now we know that Neville was the chosen one. Harry has been completely coasting (laughs) off of our goodwill all this time. Neville is acclaimed. He becomes the new minister of magic. Harry is seen as this guy who just completely was imitating the chosen one all these years and Harry finally gets he still gets to keep this is sort of I think the the best of both worlds. I think that Harry still gets to keep his magic. He still gets to live as a wizard, but he is no longer the chosen one. He is no longer the boy who lived. He is no longer the legendary figure and he finally gets to live I think the best of both worlds as a normal wizard. No, and no, no. He that... gets to have his normal life and then he becomes Defense Against the Dark Guard's teacher at Hogwarts and eventually the headmaster of Hogwarts.
2: That that is um, that was great up until Neville killing uh, Voldemort. I think there has to be some kind of if you're going to make that thing, there has to be some kind of like if, if you're going to go down that road of like there's a good part of Voldemort then we have to find some way to actually yep. redeem that. I, I I think that it becomes too cynical if Neville kills Max, him. That is a deeply no, awful. It's I mean, it's perfect perfectly some kind of. Um. <laughs> It's, it's yeah, no. is
0: it has it no
1: you okay good. You're the one no, who taught me. Not. Again, going back to you talking about Breaking Bad, you have to honor the things that we love about this, and that is all concept and no heart. There's nothing about that that honors. In fact, it it explicitly betrays it. It calls us all idiots for having loved Harry and been invested in him and being invested <laughs> in mythology. right.
0: No, 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 this no. is the Jonathan Harry
2: Potter. Is right and you're wrong, and Matt. This is like a over clever no. thing that you thought up in your fever dream while staring at the ceiling, masturbating. This is not <laughs> a
0: real no, idea. No, I feel if like you read if you read this, you would have hated it. This is bad idea. That is idea. not true. Ultimately, the big problem with the ending of Harry Potter is that they said at the beginning of book one there is an evil wizard, Hitler. and We have to kill him, and then at the end of book seven, they kill him, and that is profoundly. Unsatisfying. I think what? that they have to wait. Stop. They stop. Have to, no, you know, like said in...
1: but answer this question. And I'm asking sincerely, I'm not just giving you guff. Lord of the Rings opens with you have to take this ring and drop it into Mount Doom, and then the ring gets dropped into Mount Doom. Supremely satisfying.
0: I would not say supreme. I don't find okay. the ending of Lord of the Rings supremely satisfying. I find the ending of Star Wars supremely satisfying. I find Lord of the Rings know, know. the movie or the book. Neither. I don't find the books or the movies. I I didn't have a point. I just,
1: basically, I think sometimes, so here's, no, this is actually, no, I do have a point. Damn it. I I changed my mind. I think it's absolutely essential. And this is one of my most essential metrics for whether or not I think a movie or TV show or book is good. When a scene starts, I don't want to know how it's going to end. That kind of surprise about outcomes is essential for me in scenes i actually do not care in fact i love knowing how the whole story will end because that's that slow moving train wreck thing where you can't look away and you're getting sucked in because you know where it's going right it creates all this ironic distance between the characters and and the audience i i think you're using some kind of rule which is we know at the beginning of the story they're going to do x and then x happens and i think that's too simplistic Absolutely. If you want to apply your formidable Matt Bird brain to what needs, I, I'm not being sardonic <laughs> there. It, like, you are very good at this. I am. You're very good at this, Matt. I utterly reject the simplistic criticism that at the beginning of the story, there was an objective. And at the end of the story, the objective was obtained. If you want to get more granular and more interesting in a blog post or a future podcast, I would love you to explain why sometimes when the stated objective is fulfilled as stated it works and why sometimes it fails i think you're going to find that the difference between those two things has a lot to do with the final moments and the little pieces kind of little pieces it's it's, it's a question of details but but your but your big re- your well, big rejection of a story or your big critique that at the beginning they say they're going to do this and at the end they do this i don't i think that's not helpful to a writer, and this is the thing that I always bump into.
0: Well, I Sometimes think these big ideas are helpful. Well, I think it comes down to obstacle versus conflict, and I think that ultimately in Harry Potter book seven, they're like, "Oh, we're getting to the ending too quickly," and I think they did the exact same thing in the Rise of the Skywalker. They said okay, let's add a bunch of obstacles at the last second. So they literally said, let's add these seven obstacles, these seven horcruxes, none of which is going to cause us to rethink our quest in any way. None of Wrong. which is going to Wrong. cause us, Wrong. none of which is going to cause us any internal conflict. None of which is going to cause us to when doubt Ron us our quest. When tries to get the thing out of the, seven, out of the pond these are and he sees Harry obstacles. and Hermione
2: and, he, and, they're fe- and he's feeling very jealous of them. That's the part of the test of one of the horcruxes. That that's an a...
0: obstacle not a conflict no that's no, no that's a obstacle. conflict
2: that... that is not ron a is wondering whether or not i should go back together with harry and hermione and he has a true emotional conflict it's not yes. an
0: obstacle he has and yeah i mean there are... i'm not saying it's an emotionally flat book it's not but it's not ultimately something where they are ever having to question their quest And I mean, I think the ultimate example of this is Rise of Skywalker. I like ultimately the Harry Potter finale. I think it works, but I think it could have been much deeper and much more meaningful. But the Rise of Skywalker is just awful where it's like, oh, suddenly, yes, once again, we're getting to the ending too quickly. So we have like, oh no, we have to find these three things. We have to follow this. Right, this this, is a very
2: pernicious thing in in like both Harry Potter and and the Marvel movies and Star Wars is just like, it becomes a video game in Which you have to hunt for a bunch of yes. treasures um, yes. Both and, and, of and another thing I mean in another in Harry Potter, like a lot of book six and book seven are all about like let's determine the provenance of a wand to make <laughs> yeah. find out who's going to win. I found book seven actually extremely unsatisfying for that reason here let me lay it down for you. this is what makes for a good ending. societies gain their social cohesion through the unanimous innocent murder of somebody who we decide we're going to scapegoat with everything. And the best stories unmask that. And so in Return of the Jedi, they unmask that. Luke realizes the problem isn't the Emperor itself. It's him. It's him and his violent tendencies and he overcomes them. And yeah. Lord of the Rings, it unmasks that idea. The, the ring and Gollum and all those things, the, there's a kind of a side thing. It's like Frodo, and with the help of Sam, have to get over this, this problem in himself. If you don't confront this basic unmasking of the scapegoat mechanism, then you're just going to have any kind of story in which, like, Oh, it's like Die Hard. We kill the bad guy, and then everything's okay. That is how societies are kept together. However, stories, to be deep, must unmask that scapegoating mechanism.
0: I mean, it's interesting. You haven't seen Endgame, but it's interesting the degree to which Endgame does that. Where Endgame kills Thanos off 15 minutes into the movie. They get their revenge. For Thanos having killed half the universe, they get the revenge on Thanos, they chop his head off, and then the movie cuts to five years later, and then they get this chance to go back and change the past. But in changing the past, then Thanos comes after them again after they've already killed him off. It is brilliant, and I think it is playing with exactly the thoughts that you're playing with here. It is playing with this idea of like, well, what do you want? What do you want from the Final Avengers movie? You just want to, you just want to see them kill Thanos. Is that what you've been waiting for for these twenty two movies? Okay, fine. Here they kill Thanos. They get the revenge. Movie's over. You can leave now. Everyone who just came to see that can leave. Oh, by the way, we still have two and a half hours of movie left. Oh my God, this now. is
2: exactly what Twin Peaks Return does. They, 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 they <laughs> could die Well, okay. They get to the like the second to last episode. They say, "Oh, you thought the big villain was Bob? Okay, here's a." deliberately bad special effects situation in which they quote-unquote kill bob and it's they make it almost deliberately terrible and almost unbearable to watch and you can hear david lynch saying is this what you wanted you little piggies (laughs) you little piggies is this what you wanted and then after that there's the final episode which is what lynch is really after which is too deep to go into right now. I haven't seen Endgame, so I, I can't speak to it, but that sounds um, fine. So I want to jump in with
1: some something. First of all, uh, Matt, you're, again, I, I I'd like to keep it simple and just say kind of, you know, what you want versus what you need. I think that might be one of the brilliant things Endgame does exactly as you said, is this is what you wanted, isn't it? But the thing that's brilliant is they do it early enough to signal, okay, now it's time for your vegetables. <laughs> um but it still gives you every, it gives you the whole thing because this is the thing i mean you talk about lost as the ending where everyone gets to kiss everyone that's what happens if it's all the the fan service fluffy stuff it turns out we hate it more than anything ultimately that's why I, you know you had kind of a a weird a sort of ranty cynical take on the end of game of thrones that that i i, I don't really subscribe to but your fundamental thing is what they're actually doing was failing to make something that lived up to the harshness of the war of the universe that had been created. And it was too tidy.
0: Oh, I thought they succeeded in, I thought they succeeded in creating something that lived up to the harshness of of the world they'd created.
1: How can that series possibly end with the stable transition of power? How... How for a second. I think you have
0: to end the, that series with this. No. the whole idea of that. Show, the, the, the show is called yes. the show is called Game of Thrones. So no, the show the has, game, to, end no, the the show has to
1: end with someone assuming the throne and then the spider going And the Game of Thrones begins anew. And we cut to all over Westeros as young <laughs> lying, uh, you know, lords are, vi- are, are jockeying for power again. That was why it was bad. Because someone got installed safely and peacefully in a throne, and there was the implication that it was going to work, which that show has shown us that sort of magical thinking always gets punished with absolutely brutal bloodshed over and over again. It it's the the finale slid into its own simplistic into the they had been mocking us for simplistic thinking over and over again, and then it slides into it with the way uh, Dragon Lady d- behaves, and then the way they end up crowning the you know the new king and all of this stuff and so it lost sight of that so i'm i'm trying to figure out so these callbacks or these this thing you overlooked is now has the significance i'm trying to get some fine tuning here i think it's when it's related to like an object like that it's actually problematic and a little bit world breaking the way we're sort of talking about you know in lord of the rings and harry potter which again those are the upper echelon of of successful endings the the surprises are the ones that are a little closer to frankly, Buffy or the hypothetical Harry Potter uh, endings that were so good that I talked about and James talked about and no other parties in this podcast had good Harry Potter endings to talk about. But, um... (laughs) Um...
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, my God, you're so right! I just realized the the whole new trilogy of Star Wars is all about, oh, the provenance of Anakin Skywalker's lightsaber Nobody gave a shit about that in the original trilogy. It was just another lightsaber. But in the sequels, it became yeah. a magical object that that zipped off to the person who needed it the most. It was like, you know... Uh, uh, Like some kind of- It's the most un-Jedi thing in the world.
0: You're right. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about MacGuffins because I feel like sometimes finales are ruined because I think what you guys are talking about, finales that are ruined because of too much focus on the MacGuffin, but sometimes finales are ruined because of not enough focus on the MacGuffin. And I feel like both, certainly The Rise of Skywalker was a movie where they were like, okay, we're going to spend the final movie chasing a McGuffin. The Harry Potter book seven was much better than The Rise of Skywalker, but still it's like, we're going to spend this entire book chasing MacGuffins. It wasn't as satisfying as it could have been. I feel like, but with Lost, with the Lost finale, they were like, we are just going to abandon all the plot. And the ultimate you know, I think the loss, they thought in the Loss finale, like, we're going to have an emotional finale in which we wrap up, revisit and wrap up all the emotions of the show. And people were like, but where did the polar bear come from? That was everybody's reaction to that finale. It's like, you never wrapped up and, the plot. We never found out what the plot was. Because you never wrapped up the plot, we hate the show. And they were really shocked, I think. They were like, we've been to film school and we understand that readers and viewers don't actually care about the plot. They really care about the emotions. And... People watch The Lost finale and they're like, "No, we actually cared about the plot, which you never wrapped up, and we're really pissed." And to me, the the Lost of books is a series of unfortunate events.
1: You're actually in your articulation of the lost problem. I think you're you're highlighting something, which is um, this goes back to your Battlestar Galactica point and the the soul kind of never losing sight of the soul premise or idea behind a thing. Any other show uh, besides Lost? the choice they made at the end of lost was the correct choice because the characters and the relationships probably trump everything in almost any story, except that lost was historically famously virtuosically about the mystery of the Island. (laughs) And so it's the one show in all human history. that can't get away with that garbage of focusing on the people.
0: Yes, yeah. and they were shocked by that. I think that they thought, like, oh, we know you just care about emotion. It's like, no, we care about the plot. And to me, the ultimate, to me, I had never read the series of Unfortunate Events books when Lost happened. I guess they wrapped up around the same time. I finally went back and read all those books. I spent a year of my fucking life reading all 13 of those books to my daughter, and they spent the entire second half of that trilogy trying to get the sugar bowl. Have have James, I know you have not oh, read no. these books. Jonathan, have you I've read, read all couple, these books? i read a couple,
1: they, they, I, no, you they were all quite books. repetitive and, and I felt they like spe- I'd read.
0: No, no. <laughs> Well, they got they mechanical being after
2: book four or five. Okay.
0: Yeah, they stopped being repetitive after a while. The first five or six are very repetitive and then it becomes this massive lost like mythology epic story in which each book leads into the next and The books then peak in quality sometime around book eight, and then they begin to lose the plot. And so they spend the entirety of books like five through 12 chasing after this sugar bowl without any explanation of why everybody wants this sugar bowl. And then in the 13th book, the sugar bowl is never mentioned. And it is the ultimate fuck you to the audience. It is the ultimate fuck you to little kids who have been reading this series for 13 books and... It is him, and it is the ultimate expression of this idea of the MacGuffin. I think that, that Lemony Snicket may be that—I think you're saying that Lemony Snicket went to the same crappy film school class I did where they missed to find the MacGuffin, and he thought that nobody really cared about the MacGuffin. And I think he was being sadistic. I think that he was saying, "I've all you've cared about for the last five books, all anybody has cared about, all these characters have cared about, is— this sugar bowl and i've and yeah i've been keeping you tantalized and on tenterhooks for all this time to find out why everybody wants the sugar bowl so bad and i'm just not even going to mention it in the final book and i think that this was a massive fuck you to the 10 year old children of america and i think that people do care i think that the writers of Lost were shocked to find out people actually did care about the plot i think the writer i think that you know, there was not as much of a negative reaction to the sticker books, but I think those books would be far more beloved if they had ended satisfactorily. And I, I think that both of you two would have read them if they had ended satisfactorily, and they had had more of a reputation as books everybody has to read and finish. And I get, to, I was so furious. I was just as furious at the end of the sticker books as I was at the end of Lost.
1: Every single great speculation about Lost was that they were that the island itself was purgatory, and that was probably actually the yes. idea that some of the creators or showrunners were at least kicking around or thinking about and then I think the internet was like oh I think the island is purgatory I think they're all dead and then they're like shoot no we got to make it different I know we're going to keep the purgatory idea but make a third timeline that takes place off of the island and so it was <laughs> but based, that to uh, me might have been an sure. indication actually that like they they had been sitting on that idea and they were going to do it on the island and if it had been on the island it would have been great, but they were so afraid of someone knowing their ending. This is, you know, the same problem. I think this problem actually happened with Game of Thrones as well. My hope is that George R.R. R. Martin takes his sweet, sweet time and reads every single Reddit theory out there, just as I wish J.K. Rowling could somehow read every Reddit thread out there and reissue the seventh book with a couple tweaks. Lord of the Rings is a pretty great ending, and it's exactly as stated, but I think there's a paranoia about oh, the ending of a big series should always have a shock. And I think maybe this is the articulation and the tool I will take away from this conversation is this, the place where the shock occurs is not about plot, it's about theme. The shock of Toy Story 3 was pushing mm, the theme yeah. of these toys being children through so that the toy is suddenly, the that Woody is suddenly the parent letting go of Andy going to college, right? That you push through to the theme that Luke has to put down the lightsaber, which we've been taking for granted the whole time. And so I think that's where your twist is. But the plot points themselves not only can be predictable, but probably should.
0: Well, I mean, I put it one time on the blog that it's about ascending versus descending. And do you want to end with your hero ascending or descending? Ultimately, Harry Potter sort of descends. He descends to Voldemort's level at the end of that series. And... Luke ascends. Luke says, I'm going to rise above Vader's level. Harry just never does that. Harry never ascends. Jonathan, you brought us all here today. Is there any final no, thoughts? Uh,
1: I, the thing I opened with is the thing I still think, which is that, that this is something I don't hear a lot of people talking about enough. Uh, I hope really I've planted some seeds that lead to you two having significant conversations, the fruit of which I can enjoy because I need some help. And I think a lot, a lot of writers need help. All of our three structure kind of three act structure talk that we have all of our standard storytelling doctrine. I don't think the same sets of rules apply here. And I think half the reason that all of these things fail is because we, no one's really dealt with what, what we need to do in the endings of these long stories. So I, I don't feel like I've answered anything, but if, if, uh, if you guys can answer it, I'd be greatly appreciative. <laughs>
2: I can, I can Please. answer it.
0: Yes, answer it, James.
2: A, a final movie, something that kind of—I mean, this has to happen at the end of any story, but it definitely has to happen. It, but one story can get away with flouting this because it can just be fun. But if you are in, if you are committed to a multi-story arc, you definitely have to do this. It has to touch something outside the story. It has to do something that just, just doesn't disappear up the butt of the world itself. So it can't be about we have to get all seven items. It can't be about what is a provenance of this wand. It can't be about we have to get these various things. It has to be about one soul. It has to be about the worldview of the world itself and the hero's relationship to it. And it has to be something that fundamentally problematizes it and frankly, kicks you out of it, like Star Wars. Like it's the reason that you love it is because you love Tie Fighters shooting at the Millennium Falcon. And so, what the thing that is going that the the only way you can get out of it in a satisfying way, ironically, is that it kicks you out and tells you Tie Fighters shooting at the Millennium Falcon is not important. Um, it has to be something that goes above and beyond. It, it has to be something that touches something deeper in us than the id that got us interested in the story in the first place
0: yeah and i think that the best finales do that i think i would say return of the jedi may be the all-time great finale i would say that endgame is really good it is up there i would say breaking bad is great i would say that there are a handful of great finales but i gotta say everything you're saying to me is the reason why to my mind return of the jedi is the greatest and Rise of Skywalker is not. So, Jonathan, it sounds like you've got... You're ending mainly on questions. James, you've got some answers. You think it's about rising above. I think that that is an excellent point. I think that this is... That we've 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 come up with some good stuff today. We are trying to grapple with it, Jonathan. You now have to write the final book in a trilogy. You have to grapple with all these ideas and actually make them work. Do you feel you have any more tools to do that than you had when we started this conversation?
1: Uh, the most valuable thing that I didn't enter the conversation with um, was probably this: just a real concrete sense that of the tangible loss and that maybe making an audience feel loss is what makes an ending feel like an ending because endings are necessarily mm. there's there's grieving and giving the space for that grieving and catharsis um Wait, wasn't it, it wasn't the a point, point that i made, you made though? Uh, on 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 it's the point that i made <laughs> on the back of what you said
2: <laughs> i came out of that with the point that I myself made, and it turned out it was confirmed. So you two, J holes, can f the d. <laughs> no, it was a direct response
1: oh. to what you said, James. I, uh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have. I basically just oh, kind okay. of piggybacked on something you were talking about. Um, and I didn't come in, but you. but
0: you think that I'm, you think I'm like handsome though, right? I mean, you think Matt, I'm sort of a handsome guy though, right? I mean, you, you Matt, have positive I cannot things to say about me to too, I can you right?
1: enough how desperately I wished we could just hang out. You're from afar. You're one of my favorite people out there. Uh, and, uh,
0: from afar, I'm from afar, from I, afar I, I'm I will say I read a little more people. deeply <laughs> and, <laughs> i have i have great i have great qualities from afar jonathan thank you so much for coming on the show again uh I, thank you so much for letting us help you grapple with your process and i hope we all gentlemen. come up with something valuable james any final words we did it great we job did everyone. It. no i love this podcast Jonathan, any final words fun
1: to uh get to hang out with you all each of you i think are, are really fantastic and, and i'm
0: a better writer because of you guys so okay guys Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to SecretsOfStory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James' novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at JamesKennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash SecretsOfStory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story One and at I Am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hen and Kaim. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.